Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Will Smith had a word for us this morning. Uh, when you came here to church this morning, you were given a bulletin, and uh, I found some bulletin misprints, okay, some mistakes that churches made in their own bulletins, and I just want to read those to you guys right now. Uh, here's one. Smile at someone who is hard to love and say hell to someone who doesn't care much about you. These will be on the screens, too. The, the rosebud on the altar this morning is to announce the birth of David Allen Miles, the sin of Reverend and Mrs. Julie Miles. <laughs> the senior choir invites any member of the congregation who enjoys sinning to join the choir. <laughs> Couple more. Please join us as we show our support for Amy and Allen preparing for the girth of their first child. <laughs> And finally, everybody's favorite Christmas hymn, Angels We Have Heard Get High. <laughs> you guys know that one. Um, we've all had failures. We've all messed up. But they probably weren't broadcasted to the whole church or to the entire world. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at a story of failure and a response to failure. And I want to start by telling you a story. Uh, it's a story about a king wasn't an ordinary king. Uh, he was chosen by God at a very young age. He had faith, deep faith, the kind of faith that could conquer giants, uh, the kind of faith that would trust God even when he was hiding in a cave, running for his life, the kind of faith that refused to take things into his own hands and waited for God's timing to give him the throne. And God blessed this king. God gave him territory. Every military venture that his nation embarked on, they were victorious because of the mighty hand of God was upon this king. God surrounded him with mighty warriors to protect him and the nation. One of the mighty warriors was so amazing that he, in one encounter, killed 800 men with a spear. Another one of his warriors was in a battle against an army, and his nation takes off. They, they bail behind him, and so he's there by himself, and he fought so long and so hard that his, froze actually, his sword actually froze to his hand. One time, this king was thirsty for water, and he thirsted for the kind of water that came from his old hometown where he grew up. And so he just says, oh, if I could have water from the well by where I grew up. And unfortunately now, this well was now under enemy territory. But these mighty warriors left in the middle of the night, killed a bunch of men, and got water for this king from that well and brought it back to him. And this king was so moved by their devotion, but he was also shaken, shaken to his core. So instead of drinking this water that men killed for, he pours it out as an offering to God. God blessed not only the king, but also his warriors. And the homes of these powerful warriors were surrounding the palace. And one night, while his warriors are fighting a battle, one of the king's wars, the king goes on top of the roof of his palace to stare at the vast kingdom. He kind of leans over the edge. And he's just blown away by all that God has done. And as he leans on the edge, his eyes glance to one of the homes of his, one of his warriors, and he notices that there's a window open. So he peers through the window, and he sees a woman bathing. So he turns his head. And as he's staring at the sky, he has a moment of weakness. The moment of weakness turns into ravenous lust. 
turns his head slowly back to the window. And he says to his bodyguards, who is that woman? Go get her and bring her to me. And he sleeps with her. He's the king, he can do what he wants. And besides, he can keep her quiet. No one's gonna find out. And a couple of weeks go by, and the king thinks he's gotten away with it. Until he gets word from the wife of one of his warriors that she's pregnant. And so the king comes up with a plan. He says, I'm gonna order her husband, this warrior who has fought and killed for me, I'm gonna order him off the front lines, and he can come home, he'll get a couple days of relaxation, he'll sleep with his wife, and all is good. And so he sends for the, for, to the front lines, and the warrior comes home, and he uh, spends time with his, his, his family, but he refuses to sleep with his wife. He sleeps on the porch. He says, I'm not going to sleep with my wife. I'm not going to sleep in my bed while other men are on the front line sleeping under an open sky for fear of their lives. So the king is distraught. He thinks of another plan. Okay. So he invites this soldier back to his, his, his palace, and he says, I'm going to get you drunk. So he starts giving him all the liquor that he could want, and he gets wasted. And, and he goes, now go home and, and you know, hang out with your wife, wink, wink. And so he stumbles back to his, his home across from the palace, and he passes out before he opens the door. <laughs> the king is now frustrated. His plans were foiled again. So he summons the mighty warrior to his palace, and he gives him sealed orders. He commends him for his service. Thank you for all that you've done. And he seals it with his signet ring, and he gives him instructions to give to the general on the front lines. And so this soldier leaves his home on horseback, not knowing that he's carrying his own death warrant. And he hands it to the commander, and the orders were to where the fighting is most fierce, place this soldier and then retreat, and he was killed. It's done. When the king was heard, heard this, he takes the wife as his own. It's over, he got away with it. And as the pregnancy uh, moved forward, the king is getting excited about the baby. The evil choices he made are behind him, and the consequences have been avoided, until one day, a prophet of God uh, approaches the king and tells him a story. And I just want to read this story that he has told to the king. And it says this. When he came to the king, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. The king burned with anger against the man and said to the prophet, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then the prophet said to the king, you are that man. The king, of course, was King David. The woman was Bathsheba. And this story is from 1 and 2 Samuel, predominantly chapters 11 and 12. And now, through the prophet Nathan, what was hidden 
has now come to the light. David is confronted with his actions. And there's no way to sidestep it. It's sexual assault. It's using his position of power and privilege for his own sexual gratification at the expense of someone else. It's adultery. It's murder. And it's a cover-up. Now, there are a ton of directions we could now go with this story, right? We could talk about how sin ensnares us. It might start with a little look, but it ends up so much worse, right? We could talk about how sin uh, it escalates. It starts with something small and then gets bigger and bigger. But this morning, we're going to pull back the palace curtain. And we are going to put a camera in King David's room right after the prophet Nathan confronts him of his actions. Right after this massive failure, what is David's response to God once his sin is called out? Once everything catches up to him? This is what Psalm 51 is. Psalm 51, David Kidner says this, is the fourth and surely the greatest of the penitential psalms. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest commentators of the 20th century, postponed working on Psalm 51 week after week because every time he would sit down to do it, uh, he would get up again hours later without having written one word. He concluded this, Psalm 51 is a bush burning with fire yet not consumed. And out of it, a voice seems to cry to me. Such a song may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ah, where is he who, having attempted it, can do other than blush at his defeat? This is our passage of scripture this morning, Psalm 51. In this context, David commits two sins for which the Mosaic law provided no forgiveness. Deliberate murder and adultery. Death was the inevitable punishment for this king. But this very darkness led David to the light. Psalm 51 starts off this way. A psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So the Bible tells us right away the context of this prayer. He's confronted. You are that man. And David's response. Here it is. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The first thing David does in this psalm is a fierce and almost desperate clinging to God's mercy. In the opening verses, David pleads three characteristics of God. Mercy, unfailing love, and compassion. And in the following verses, David uses three words, three Hebrew words to describe his own actions. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. It is the wager of King David and the deep conviction of ancient Israel that God's mercy, love, and compassion will triumph sin, iniquity, and transgressions. The, the Hebrew word here for mercy is trehan. Okay, you gotta have that little guttural there, that trehan. It means to be gracious, to show favor. Then the word for unfailing love is maybe the greatest word in Hebrew. It's hesed. Chesed means unfailing love, loving kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And finally, compassion. Raham. Womb. Isn't it beautiful that the Hebrew word for compassion is the same word for womb? Because it is mothers who exhibit compassion to us, God's compassion to us. Remember when you were in trouble as a kid? 
Who do you want to talk to first? Is it dad? No. Where's mom? The mercy, unfailing love, and compassion of God is greater than the transgression, the Hebrew word here, hasha, it's rebellion. Then the word iniquity, which is guilt or depravity, perversity. And then sin, missing the mark. In the midst of David's failures, huge failures, he clings to God's mercy, love, and compassion, and he turns from his transgressions, iniquities, and sins. This is so different than how we often think of God in the midst of our own failures. When my son Dex was two, he's five now, uh, we made some mistakes. Sarah and I made some mistakes as parents. Uh, uh, one of those was that when it, we, he took his seatbelt off in the car while we were driving, and we told him the, the policeman would come and get you and take you to jail. <laughs> and before we knew it, our son had an irrational fear of law enforcement and we also created a tiny little narc. Um, <laughs> I'd take my seatbelt off just before parking, and he'd put a sippy cup down and go, Dad, policeman, come and get you and take you to jail. <laughs> Zip it. <laughs> policeman, come and get you. When our transgressions, iniquities, and sins catch up with us, we think God is a policeman, and he's going to come and get you take you to jail. All the while, God responds with mercy, compassion, and love. Doesn't mean he's not active in the midst of our failures. He actually uses our failures. Uh, when Sarah and I were dating, uh, we would go on day trips, and we would go down to Southern California, and then we'd drive back up, and, and uh, uh, sometimes we'd take my car, sometimes we'd take her car, more often we would take her car. And uh, she would sit in the passenger side, and on the way home, it was often late at night, uh, she would just sleep. And I've got music going and stuff, and she would, she would often sleep. And it's, it's funny, on long road trips, you could be sleeping in the car, but when you get to that first off-ramp and you stop at that first stoplight off the freeway, something wakes them up, right? She would always go, we're home already, you know? And... Uh, I remember one particular time we were driving on the grapevine. We were in her Chevy S10 pickup, and she's sleeping, and I'm driving, and a semi kind of goes in front of us, and I see it too late, and our top front end hits it, and I'm jolted. I pull over, and she kind of, what happened? And they go, we got in a wreck. And I pull over, and we go to a gas station, and I remember calling her dad. And this, I'm still trying to impress, you know, future in-laws. <laughs> And I remember holding back tears going, I would never do anything to put your daughter in harm's way. And he's like, are you crying? I'm like, no, there's pollen in the air on the grapevine. And pollen everywhere. God uses life's stoplights to wake us up. He also uses accidents and tears and confrontation and failures to wake us up. Psalms 51 might be the greatest chapter in the Bible on repentance. And it was written because of a failure, because of a failed moment. We would not have Psalm 51 if David was perfect. David was clearly uh, repentant. He wasn't just sorry he got caught, because there's a difference. He was sorry he had broken the very heart of God, and he came home to God. David was an example of a, a, a true change in his heart. David failed, but he wasn't a failure. 
That is true for us. You might fail. You are not a failure. What if God doesn't choose to save us in spite of our failures, losses, and embarrassments, but precisely through them? What if it's not avoiding falling that strengthens our faith, but the falling itself? That there are ways we can grow, there are ways our hearts can expand in the midst of our own suffering and failures, that we couldn't do it without that suffering. Psalm 139 says this, verse 12, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I just find that so beautiful. That, the, that I'm going to hide this in the darkness. And, and, and David here says, even darkness is as light to you. There's no escaping the fact that we will have to deal at times with the intrinsic consequences to our bad decisions. But God is not the one who enforces the law of gravity of cause and effect as some extra sort of punishment. God is the one who interrupts that cycle with grace. Who interrupts the cycle of our own natural consequences to our bad decisions. God's not the one causing those bad things in our lives. God's the one interrupting it with grace. The pattern of triple parallel statements that we find in verses 1 through 3 continues 7 through 9. He says this, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Here are the three words or phrases David uses to appeal to God's mercy. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop, wash me, blot out my sin. To wash is literally to descend me. Descend me, Lord. To, to wash or to blot out means removing writing from an ancient book, perhaps uh, removing an indictment. Cleanse me with hyssop. What does that mean? Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was a small plant frequently found growing in the crevices of stone walls. Because of its shape and structure, it was used as a brush, small brush, and in temple ceremonies, it was used to sprinkle blood. In fact, the first time it's mentioned in the Bible is at Passover. Check this out, Exodus 22, or Exodus 12. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on top and on both sides of the doorframe. When David asked God to cleanse me with hyssop, he's saying, God, cleanse me with the blood. David knew this. What he didn't know was how true that would be in the future. Because that is only in Jesus, a descendant of King David, who sits on the throne of King David, that cleansing by the blood would have as much fuller meaning. Because in Jesus there would be no more sacrifice for sins. It was the pure and spotless lamb. He cleanses us by the blood. Here are a, a few practical things that we see in Psalm 51. This will be on the screens. When we carry past mistakes with us to the future... The future suffers. Have you experienced this in your own life? In the Philippines, there was a driver of a caravel wagon. He was on his way to the market, and he saw an old man carrying this massive weight on his shoulders. Just, just like this. 
Taking compassion on him, the driver pulled over and invited the man into the wagon. And gratefully, the old man accepted. After a few minutes of driving, he turned to see how the old man was doing. And to his surprise, he still found him straining under the burden. He never took the weight off his shoulders. See, Christ offers us rest to all who trust him completely. Freedom is available. Moving past your burdens is possible. You don't have to carry them any longer. Psalm 51 declares that mercy awaits our confession to God. Mercy is what awaits. Some of you have been carrying the weight for a long time, whatever it was, past failure, past struggle, unforgiveness. And maybe you've asked God to take it off your shoulders, but God wants your participation in the matter. Don't just say, take it away, Lord. Throw it at his feet and stop staring at it as if you miss it being on your shoulders. Once you lay them at the feet of Jesus, just walk away from the burden. Some of us have said, God, take this burden, I give it to you, and then we've held on to it. Others have dropped it at his feet and we stare at it like we miss it. And we go back. It continues to permeate our thoughts and our minds. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is just stop thinking about it. I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, but when we say, God, take this burden, take this weight, take this failure, it's not a magic pill to where all of a sudden you're just going to, no, you have to, you're, you play a part of this. God will wipe it clean. But if you keep staring at it, it's going to continue to haunt you. Some of us just need to stop dwelling. Jesus says, give me that yoke of oppression, and I will give you my yoke, which is easy, and the burden is light. In verse 10, he moves from confession to anticipation. And Glenn read some of these verses earlier. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This last verse right there, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This shows that it's not a foxhole conversion. You know what a foxhole conversion is, right? It comes from World War I where they would dig these trenches and foxholes and people would be hiding under there and there's bullets flying everywhere and you make a confession to God. God, if you get me out of this, I will serve you the rest of my life. And God gets them out of it. And they do serve him for two days. That's a foxhole conversion. This is not what David's doing. He's called out by the prophet Nathan and he says, Create in me a clean heart. Blot out my iniquities. Wash me of my sin. Which could sound like a foxhole conversion until he says this last thing. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So it's God, forgive me for what I did, but help me to not do it again. We, we often leave that part out of our prayers. God, forgive me, make me new. He says, grant me some, put in me a spirit that will actually sustain me and keep me going to make the right decisions. So he says, create in me a clean heart. The, the word here, create, is bara. It's the word that we find, one of the very first words in the Bible, Genesis. When God says God created the heavens and the earth, bara is the word created. And, it, and then, when it's referenced in Genesis 1, it's God creating something beautiful and majestic out of nothing. 
out of, out of chaos, nothing, and God creates Barah. So when David says, Barah, create in me a clean heart, he's saying, out of nothing, out of the chaos that is within me, create something new. And it's going to be supernatural. It's going to be a miracle. And it says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He, it's important to note that David's not praying for God to restore his salvation, but that God would restore the joy of his salvation. It's not the salvation which David lost. It was the joy he experienced. Amen. That's what was lost. Last point I notes is this. In the aftermath of failure, we must look up and move forward. That, that's, not what ha that's not how we feel. Have you ever messed up and you, you get in the car or you're home alone and you, you say, God, I, man, I really, I really blew it. There's almost something inside of us that feels like we need to kind of keep our distance from the big guy and let him cool down first before we go to him, right? I, I'm a sinner. I messed up. I screwed up. I was supposed to do this, and I did this. I blew it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I messed up. And it's like I feel like I need to take a couple of days away from God. Like he forgave me. I believe that. But I kind of... I kind of got to bear this burden on my own for a few days. Let him cool off. That's not what David does. That's not what we need to do. Hebrews says that we approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. The very place that you think you shouldn't be in the middle of a mess up, in the middle of a failure, is the very place you should be. And the Bible says to approach God's grace with confidence. That's what you'll find. Not when you're at your best. Sure, we can go to God with confidence when we're doing good. We leave church on a Sunday. We're beaming. That's that new song, All Hail King Jesus. Yes. And so we're feeling it. We feel good. We had a women's event tonight. It's going to be, I'm on fire. We can go to God with confidence then. But when we mess up, when we get in a verbal intense fellowship with our significant other or spouse and we drop some lines that we shouldn't be saying and we drop some we start inventing cuss words because we're so upset you don't feel like approaching the throne of grace with confidence amen right I, I gotta I gotta take some time off Lord I need to cool down and God says that's when we need mercy and grace the most that's when we approach him with, with confidence now, this is a picture of the Australian coat of arms. Uh, it's cute. Uh, what you'll find is on the left, a kangaroo, and on the right, an emu. Not necessarily symbols of power, right? Like, it, you put an emu on a shield, and you're like, that's cute, right? I'm not scared. But these animals were chosen because they share a characteristic that appealed to the Australian forefathers. Both the emu and the kangaroo can only move forward, they cannot move back. The emu's three-toed foot actually prevents them from moving backwards, they'll fall. 
And the kangaroo is prevented from moving reverse because of its large tail. They can only move forward. They cannot move back. We can learn something from down in there. Those who truly choose to follow Jesus, we must become like the eagle and the kangaroo, moving forward, never backward. Because nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is unusable by the divine. I want to invite Noe and the band to come up, and I'll close with this. It's easy for us to just skate over this. David failed so big, right? God blessed him beyond his wildest dreams, and David blew it. He was a hypocrite, he was an adulterer, he was a murderer. Have you ever screwed up? Have you ever failed? Whatever it was. Whatever it was. And I know you're thinking of it now. I don't know what it is. God does. You do. God's posture towards you is not a, as a policeman to come and get you and take you to jail. God responds with mercy, unfailing love, and compassion. C.S. Lewis said this, and I think he nailed it. We have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. No, it doesn't. Jesus does. Jesus is the one who can forgive us of all the stuff we've done, all the things we've thought, the sins that people have seen and the sins that nobody has seen. Jesus blots it out, washes it away, cleanses us by the blood. There is cancellation in Jesus. There is forgiveness in Jesus. Whatever you have done, whatever you have thought, no matter what it is, there's forgiveness in Jesus. God, I pray in Jesus' name that when we fail, we run to you. That there, are, there already is innate consequences to our actions. But God, help us not to prolong those by keeping our distance from you. Let us run into your open arms. That's what you desire. God, how in the world is this hypocrite, David, is this murderer, David, this adulterer, David, this liar, David, how is he the only one in the scriptures that is called a man after God's own heart? That doesn't make sense, God. It should have been a saint. It should have been somebody who, who was good, who doesn't fail that big. But God, I thank you that he, you, he is called a man after your own heart. Not because he failed, or not because he didn't fail, but how he responded in the midst of that failure. Thank you for that, God. Help us to do that, too. Help us to do that, Jesus. If you're in this room and, and you're like, I don't think I've ever asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. You can. Right now, your heart before God. And I know that some of the people in this room are thinking, I can't, he can't forgive that. Yes, he can. And so even during this song, you don't have to pray it out loud. You don't have to raise your hand, but your heart to his, God forgive me, 
cleanse me, blot out my iniquities, wash me white as snow. There is mercy and unfailing love. That is God's posture to you. So God, I pray that even now, even as we sing, and even as we sit in a room at a high school theater at 5445 North Palm Avenue in Fresno, that maybe we ask for forgiveness for our sins for the very first time. You're big enough to forgive David. You're big enough to forgive me. We love you, Father. We worship you. Thank you that your response to our transgressions, iniquities, and sins is compassion, unfailing love, and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand so we declare the love of God to you?